everybody, and welcome to another episode of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. I am one of your two hosts, Julian Huguet. <laughs> I'm your other host, Trace Dominguez. Yeah, we never settled on host or co-host or what, <laughs> what's the proper terminology. And joining us for this episode, we have a very special guest. He's a YouTuber and a Dr. Ali Mateau. Welcome. Thank you for having the time to come by and be a part of this nonsense. Oh, I love a little nonsense in the morning or you know afternoon evening it's always a good time for nonsense yeah the <laughs> advantage of a podcast you can have nonsense at any time of the day also yeah. they don't know what time it is so we can be like wow oh geez just woke up just rolled out of bed here i am everybody <laughs> well welcome everybody thanks for joining us this again is the show where we take absurd silly questions that have crossed our mind when we're out and about or in the shower or wherever we may be when an odd thought hits us and then we assign it to one of the other hosts they have to go away research it come back and answer our ridiculous question so Starting off this episode, Trace, I believe you are taking the lead with our first silly question. Oh, this is such a good question. I'm really excited about it. Uh, the question is, what happened to placentas and umbilical cords in the past? Like ancient people, what did they do with them? And this question came from Ali. So Ali, tell me, how did you come up with this? All right. So, um... I got, I got two, I got two kids, right? So I have, uh, I have seen. They're, they are your own, right? You they didn't are, take them. Confirmed. I got two. <laughs> I got two kids. Sounds like I just went out and, and took them. Okay. I, I have acquired, to make sure. I've acquired children. <laughs> if it comes out later that they were not originally yours and we had you on the show, we're going to look really bad. You know, like, why did you not ask? So I have to be sure. Our, can, our director of communications over here. <laughs> okay. Good. That's established. So Ali has in his position. Two children. <laughs> I have, I have, I've produced two offspring. Whoa, um, you! Wow, wow, wow! I can confirm. Co-produced. Co co Let's not take too much hey, credit. We never settled. We never settled on if it's produced or co-produced. We did. Who's the executive producer? That's yeah. what I need to know. <laughs> he had the seed funding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, all right. So I have seen placentas. <laughs> I have seen umbilical cords. I have uh, I have cut one of them uh, with my son, who is now one year old. And so, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking after I cut his umbilical cord, I was like, you know, what did what did old timey humans do? They didn't have all this fancy stuff. Did they know to to remove it? Were they just like, eh, well, let this like long thing hang out for a while. It'll <laughs> eventually fall out. And I, I was literally thinking about this in the shower one day because I was uh, cleaning my belly button. And I was like, oh, man, what did you know what belly buttons are weird. And so like what what was this like for old timey humans? I also think um, when you have a, a newborn baby, no one tells you that this like other strand of the umbilical cords is going to like hang there for a few weeks. And you know what doctors say? They're like, yeah, it'll eventually just fall off. Like, yeah, you know, yep. don't worry You're about it. You're laissez-faire about the whole... Yeah, they actually really are, as someone with one co-produced child. I Well, actually, I like to say I made a contribution. People are like, he's so cute. And I'm like, you know what? You know, I'll, I just, like, showed up. I put an investment in, and then they went and built the company, and it's great. That's it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, they don't. They're just like, oh, yeah, and then it'll fall off. And you're like, but what do I do with it? Cause it's just well, it'll out slowly there. decay, 
and it'll start yeah. to smell bad and look really yeah. gross and then it's going to fall off. And and this seems so, so primordial to me. I've always wondered like what? Well, I haven't always wondered. I've wondered since <laughs> recently, since thinking about this stuff, like what, what was it like? The, I mean, this is all very informative. As somebody with no children that I'm aware of, like <laughs> this is all very helpful. So. Yeah, actually, that was going to be. So I'm going to answer this question. Okay, okay? Take, we're yeah. going to go through it. it. There's some really cool stuff here. We get like ancient humans. We got animals. We got all sorts of stuff that we're going to talk about. Love it. But I wanted to pose to the only. I mean, as far as we know, person <laughs> here without children, uh, Julian. Yes. Do you know? what an umbilical cord and placenta are. I I think so, but I feel like this is about to be those like Jimmy Kimmel segments where people <laughs> on the street actually have no clue about anything. So this could be humbling, but I think so. Do you want me to take a stab at it? Yeah, give me like a, a short, like a, a two lines. What is an umbilical cord? What is a placenta? So umbilical cord transfers vital like nutrients and um, antibodies to like a developing fetus from the mother. And a placenta is like a like a sack that the baby's growing in. <laughs> like a... the baby sack. Yes, <laughs> the baby, the baby sack. No, I don't know. I've never thought very carefully about what a placenta is. If I'm honest, I honestly think. <laughs> well, we've and got... then the baby comes out of the butt. <laughs> Right? Did I nail that? I think I, think you I know nailed what? that. You nailed it, but that was perfect. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> uh, okay, I I elect. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, with that. I mean, I did so mean to put you on the spot. But I do think most people are probably in the same boat as you. If they haven't been in the room with those two things, they yeah. probably don't know that much about it. And maybe if they have been in the room, they might not. I, like Ali, also was in the room, saw the placenta. It's weird looking. I cut the umbilical cord for my kid. What was that like, Trace? Tell this, us. This is the only word that I can describe. Wait. And Ali, please tell me if this is how you feel as well. What, Julian? I'm just imagining when you're like, I cut the umbilical cord do you want to guess what it's like you're going to describe it like a mall opening with like some golden scissors like a ribbon i declare this baby born and then you cut it yeah i mean maybe for my second kid i'll do that that's a great idea <laughs> okay well what was it like chewy i was gonna say yeah it was really um it's like a big a big piece of beef that was stretched out and not like uh not like a great piece but a piece you probably wouldn't eat um and you'd probably get rid of um yeah like gristly gristle yeah yeah, chewy. yeah gristly i i describe it as chewy yeah it's it's really a weird thing the placenta is very strange you, looking you weren't cutting it with your teeth no right with like medical scissors okay but when you cut something you can still kind of feel right the, you know. i just want to make sure because the words you chose invoke yeah. mouth parts i agree so, yeah there was, was a lot just of the first meat, word that came meat related language here but they did, you know when i thought they were gonna uh let, let me cut the umbilical cord i was i was afraid like oh no am i gonna like accidentally like cut my baby but like everything's really separated this yeah. umbilical cord's pretty long they they like give you this little little stretch yeah and like everyone else has done all this work including you know your partner for like uh delivering this child Right. And then they're yeah. like, and now would you like to cut the umbilical cord? But they present it in this like yeah. totally safe, sterile way. 
and you just do this like little tiny clip and they're like, Snip. oh. Great job, Amazing. Dad. Great job, Fantastic. partner, man. Fantastic. You nice did a work. good one. Nice work. Yeah, it is a little weird like that. But it's it was, it was, I did not know that I was going to be part of that show until it happened. The doctor was like, do you want to cut the umbilical cord? And I was like, I, I, and she's like, you do. Get over here. <laughs> It'll be fun. You'll love it. I'm not allowed to talk about the birth. Okay, so uh, I was specifically told not to talk about it. Just the afterbirth. Yeah. Okay name for the placenta. Hey! Good job. Good job. Get us back on track. Yeah, for the sack. We've got two parts here to this question. What the umbilical cord, what happened to the umbilical cord, and then what happened to the placenta. The umbilical cord is basically a, a tube, more or less. It connects the placenta to the fetus. It's actually really interesting. Inside of the tube uh, is one vein and two arteries, and they're suspended in a special connective tissue called Wharton's jelly. I remember that because we're going to come back to it. <laughs> yeah. That sounds it delicious. It does, right? Yeah. Sounds like a taffy. Yeah. That, like, yeah. Down by I the was pier. like, Wharton's jelly? Wharton's jelly. Wow. But my grandma used to oh. use that all the time. Uh, oh, right dosed. for her arthritis. <laughs> Just put a little slap. <laughs> a little Wharton's jelly on there. Um, so it develops around four weeks into gestation when it's still an embryo, uh, and then it moves the nutrients, so you nailed that part, back Woo! and forth between the placenta and the fetus. Mm. The placenta comes from the Latin... Wait, 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 Trace. Also poop, right? Uh, it, yeah, it gets rid of waste as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, baby yeah, poop. goes through, there. and I mean, it's. I, I don't think it's literally poop. I think it's just like the waste molecules in the vein, just like any, any bloodstream, but um, the blood doesn't mix between the two. It just goes to the placenta there are little villi in there and it exchanges the nutrients between the mother and the growing organism uh you know viral infection that is babies <laughs> they just basically just like latch on and they're like it's like an alien uh so placenta comes from the latin flat cake and it does kind of look like that it's basically a bunch of blood vessels it it's very easily and often described as a tree because where the tube the umbilical hits the placenta it kind of forms this tree shape of blood vessels and to be honest the placenta is incredibly fascinating the more research I did on it, the more interesting it was. Um, and I know we talk a lot about the fetus and like, oh my God, it's going to be a baby. But the placenta is really cool. <laughs> um, it's like this giant alien organ and it's the only ephemeral organ in the human organism. It oh. grows just for making the baby alive. And then once it's done, it just immediately starts to decay and disappear. So it appears after fertilization and implantation of a zygote, a fertilized egg, and it grows out of the embryo. So some people are confused on that point. I was when I was looking it up. Where's the placenta come from? The mom or the baby comes from the baby, which actually means the placenta is 50% the partner as well. So it's part of it. It's a 50-50 organ uh, in terms of genetics. And the extension cord, you know, if the placenta is where it's getting the energy from the mom and the nutrients and the waste, the extension cord is, that to the baby is the umbilical cord. Thank, so. thank you for describing this in home improvement terms yeah, so I can welcome. understand it as a man. <laughs> 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 yeah, you got you your power supply, but then you just stay here. You got plug it in. Five footer. And you really need it to be at least a 15 gauge, so you got to really get in there. <laughs> it's grounded, so you know. Yeah, uh, it's got that neutral wire. We got two arteries and we got one vein. It's very important. Um, 
<laughs> so that's the whole system. We've got the fetus, we've got the umbilical cord, we've got the placenta. The placenta transfers the nutrients from the mom and the waist, and then the umbilical cord is literally just a kind of connective tissue between the two, making sure that we get that stuff moving around. Ancient people is the question, though. So you see this whole system. The baby comes out. And within minutes or sometimes seconds, but minutes or sometimes longer, the placenta will come out too. Um, It's like a second birth. Uh, So once the baby, the important thing was out, ancient people were like, I don't know, this thing here might not be that important. Like, it's not the baby, right? So if you're in a birth today, we have all of these things that go on uh, in a modern hospital where you cut the cord, you take the placenta, and you can do all sorts of things with it. We'll come back to that. Um, But Neolithic people and like super ancient people don't seem to really care about it that much. There's not a lot written um, about like Neolithic history about the placenta or about the umbilical cord. And not a lot of mention, at least, that I could find. Um, And so cutting the cord is considered a big deal. And uh, Ali, I'm glad you mentioned it earlier because it dates back to... Uh, we it, first writings about it were in medieval times, but it was definitely done earlier. So like in the 1500s. Um, and one source says there wasn't a lot of formal information written because, and this was a, like a gentleman scientist in the Victorian era, said because this was midwives territory. <laughs> so nobody wrote it down. And I was oh, like, you moron. Did you just not ask them? Because if you wanted to know, you could have asked them. They didn't, you know. Uh, but they said essentially, Essentially that like because it was passed down by midwives throughout a lot of human history, there wasn't a lot written down about it because like but like the king of your, you know, whatever ancient castle might not want to go talk to the midwife. They're just excited to have the baby. You know, they don't need all the details. If it's a son, you know, right. If it's a daughter. Right. Well, time to get a new wife. I'm only getting daughters out of this one. And then. If only they knew it was their fault. Yeah, the whole that's time, my favorite you know? part. That's on you, my dude. <laughs> so, uh, once oh, we have yeah. some writings about it, there are two things that happen after birth. And I sort of said this, so we might I might be repeating myself, but this is what my notes say. So, first, the baby comes out, obviously, uh, ideally. Then the cord is attached to something still inside the mother. So you cut the cord. Not sure when this started, like I said, but it was first mentioned in medical texts from medieval times called the Trotula, which was written between the 12th and 15th centuries. And they actually do recommend to this day, but in this book, this ancient book, tie the umbilical cord, chant a charm during the cutting of it, and then wrap the stump. And that's still basically, except for the chanting part. I don't know. We had Jennifer Lopez playing when we, when, but whatever. You that's know. a chant. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, and let's then, or get when everybody loud. cheers when you do it, I feel yeah. like that's the same kind of invocation of like, you know, well wishes. Yeah. Whee! Yeah. So the tie part, by the way, is still a very important, still done, because if you think about it, that cord is like direct access tube to the inside of the baby. So yeah. you got to tie it up so that they don't have that problem. Um, also, you right, don't cut right. the cord immediately. You usually wait a couple minutes. It's pulsing after the baby is born, and you wait till it stops pulsing. This is called uh, delayed clamping, which is the standard of care in all modern hospitals. But at the time, they didn't specify that. Sometimes they would literally, baby pops out, slice it, you know, tie it, slice it, give the baby to whomever you're going to give it to. Uh, oh, by the way, delayed clamping sounds like you wait an hour. It's literally like wait a couple minutes. Hmm. So I had to go look that up as well. 
Um, and the reason they wait is because that cord is full of blood and the blood needs to go back into the baby so that the baby has got higher iron, higher hemoglobin. Hmm. And so they wait like between a minute and two or three minutes before they cut the, the cord. And then again, the placenta comes out a bit later. Uh, and the placenta was always kind of this side thought. It wasn't like, again, it's not a baby. And so when the, the baby is born... The cord and placenta are attached to it in the animal kingdom. And that's why there are a lot of animals that eat it. In fact, like 4,000 different species eat the placenta, documented species. It's got to be dense. I mean, yeah. this thing is just full of lots of know. good stuff. <laughs> well, it's I was curious, not so much about the placenta like eating, but just meaty. how animals <laughs> that can't tie off right. an umbilical cord deal with that and the placenta so and this is elaborate yeah thank you that's how they eat it uh so real quick almost all eutherian mammals consume their placenta but it's not universal camelids don't so like camels wow. aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals do not and humans do not although some apes do uh and some male animals again also eat it mice rats and hamsters some? specifically uh and of those four thousand mammals eating it is associated with a variety of benefits from increased mother offspring interaction brain chemicals associated with caring for offspring natural painkillers for the birthing female um it decreases postpartum hemorrhages, depressions, pseudo-pregnancies, promotes lactation, and is, of course, nutritious. You get a baby, you get a snack. Great. It was a lot of hard work. Congratulations. Have Have they done any, like, I'm pretty squeamish about food, and I'm wondering <laughs> if they've done any, like, placebo, like, studies with placebos where they give mothers and fathers, like, new mothers and fathers, like, something that they claim is placenta, but it's just like a ground beef patty and then studied it. Cause I would want to participate <laughs> in that. Cause I don't know if I want to eat the placenta, but like, Ooh, the bonding or like, you know, postpartum yeah. depression for the mother. That sounds like a great benefit. Yeah. Um, in humans, there's no proof of what they call placentophagy. Uh, there's no proof of that benefit. Um, and at least not that they found by the scientific method. <laughs> mm. I want to be clear because mm. and they've tried. Ali, when do you think? Because for those who don't know, there is a pretty big movement of people yeah. who promote eating the placenta or what what is consuming. You don't like, you know, make it into a loco moco <laughs> and like cover yeah. it and stuff and eat it. You know, you usually get it encapsuled into pills and you'll take it as a pill or you have, you know, different. Some people do it yeah. as tea. It, you can consume it in a variety of ways. When do you think yeah. that started, Ali? Um, So Perfect. based on my own experience, <laughs> which is how I base all my science is through the N of one. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter was born in 2017 in New York, and we had no options given of anything to do with the placenta. My son was born last year in 2022 in Northern California, and they said, what do you want to do with this thing? You want to take it home with you? So I'm guessing it's recent. <laughs> Trace, I'm going to say five to ten years in the last five great years. yeah really great uh it started in the 1970s so you're oh. you're off but you know price is right rules <laughs> i'm off by <laughs> many decades. 50 60 years <laughs> yeah but it started in the 70s but if you ask people who can who are proponents of this they'll be like oh it's an ancient practice mm. there's no evidence of that so it mm. it modern day people do consume the placenta uh it's typically though in surveys done of people practiced in industrialized western urban nations mostly in the united states australia and the eu yeah. so like other places where the 
snake oil salesman would be like, this is direct from the East. It's right. like, no, it's really just like direct from Australia <laughs> or, you know, Kansas or where, you know, it's like not <laughs> a, a ancient practice. A 2013 survey of 189 women who engaged in it found most were white, married and educated. So really interesting. Mm, so like the Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. demographic. Honestly, there's a lot of information on this from that, uh, yeah, from that website. And so, yeah. and even though there's no proven benefit, that doesn't mean people shouldn't do it if they want to. There are some risks, however. One uh, infant was got streptococcus from the pill form. The mother was taking the pills and it passed this infection to the baby because Ooh. they have a very weak immune system Ooh. and there's no regulation oh. for this because it's not like, there's no scientific benefit. So the companies that do it aren't regulated. They just oh. do it. So they'll dry it, encapsulate it and give it to the mom, but it could be infected with bacteria. Um, but the reason I say if you want to do it, do it is because the placebo effect is important and they have done placebo controlled studies uh, with this, a lot of different studies and there's literally... They can't find any benefits. They mm. keep looking, but they can't seem to find mm. anything. Okay. Okay. So that's it for placenta phagy. So the oldest widely known image of a placental ritual dates back to ancient Egypt, 3400 BCE. It was carved into stone. Uh, do you, do you want to see what that looks like? Yeah. So I see uh, somebody who looks like an important pharaoh man standing over a smaller figure with a couple of whips. And then he's presiding over four people holding up poles. And supported by those poles is maybe a placenta, as far as I can tell, coming out of birds. And, and, and then on the right, I see several decapitated bodies. How's my? How am I as an as an archaeologist? Did you I did, nail it? I don't great. understand how they got placenta eating ritual out of what I just looked at. Juliet, this is basically what uh, this experience is. What it's like for me to read emojis. Yeah, um, we're going back. They will be great Egyptologists is, yeah, yeah. when they when they go through college. I yeah. think so. I think so. I'm like skull and bones. Like, is this a good thing? That means that you're, you're hilarious or a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, you're and dead. Like, they no, died. It's good. Laughing so yeah. funny. Uh, they, I was yeah, like, oh, laughing cool. so hard they died. Yeah, good yeah. job. You're hip. It took me a long time to <laughs> so, do that with one. a Rosetta Stone of like, what does this translate to in ancient Greek? And then <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. then I can translate get it, it from there. So what you're seeing, the pharaoh is on the left. You're right. Yes. Leading a procession or a parade of the placenta with the umbilical cord still attached to it. So they've clamped and, you know, tied and cut the umbilical from the the baby. Wow. And the reason they did that is because they knew that the placenta was the reason or assumed, I guess, that the placenta was the reason the baby could live. That the baby needed the placenta oh. to be born. And they actually called the placenta the second soul or oh. my favorite, the Pharaoh's secret helper. So like that's kind of cute. When the prince was born or the <laughs> princess, I guess, the uh they would do this parade and they would say, like, thank you, placenta, for everything Woo! you've done. We are able to have a baby now. <laughs> they would have like t shirts and face paint. Yeah, like, they'd be Woo! all excited. All the can you imagine all the Egyptians <laughs> being like, Oh, Pharaoh had a baby. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, oh good job. Hey, yeah, placenta. Wow, yeah, good job. Is that a bunch of decapitated <laughs> bodies next I, you to You know, it? they didn't say what that was. Okay. I think that might be a separate panel. Oh, and, you know, all right. Um, those the those are the people who doubted the pharaoh could have a baby. And now <laughs> you're like, ha, 
Ha <laughs> The placenta proves you wrong. So one source I read said also that the pharaoh's livelihood was tied to the placenta. It wasn't a scholarly source, but and they did say eventually it was buried in its own tomb. Uh, they also, I think, a little on the paltrow side of it were like he took it to meetings and was like look at how great and i'm like no i don't know about that <laughs> i was like could you zoom with a pharaoh and there's like a separate camera just on the placenta hold on, hold on. that sounds great for the third quarter uh, targets but let's check in on what the placenta has to say about that Mm. No, that's a good point. The placenta raises. To follow on the placenta's point. uh... Uh, Placenta, you're still muted. Uh, So that's the oldest. So when I said earlier, Neolithic people, nothing. But by ancient Egypt, we had, you know, and the medieval times, we had these pieces of knowledge about it and how important it was. Uh, The original Bible, uh, also known as the Old Testament, Bible V1, um, (laughs) that was the seat of the external soul and the bundle of life. That's how they referred to the placenta. Oh. Uh, It wasn't called the placenta until the mid-1500s when the medieval like midwives started writing it down. And that comes from, again, Latin and Greek. To wrap up, a 2010 study by Benyashek and Young. Benyashek is one of the like biggest studiers of the placenta that I could find. They looked at 180 modern cultures to see what they do with placentas. Uh, and the cultures were across the world. Africa, Asia, Europe, Middle America, and the Caribbean, the Middle East, North America, Oceania, and South America. And found that of the 179 that they looked at, 70 had no specific ritual. 109 disposed of them by ritualistic burial, incineration, intentional placement or disposal in a specific location. Uh, which is really cool, or hanging in a tree or structure. And so the Egyptian pole thing would count as that last one. Mm. Uh, uh, Other than the placenta raid, as I like to call it, um, my favorite one was throwing it over uh, the edge of a mesa. (laughs) Like you're like a desert plateau (laughs) and you just (laughs) go... Go with the wind. Be free, placenta. Be free. (laughs) So today, uh, we do a lot of things with the placenta. You can consume it. It's typically incinerated after it's used. But my favorite thing about the placenta umbilical cord in modern day is that Wharton's jelly. Not because of the name, but because Wharton's Mm. jelly is that connective tissue that suspends the arteries in the vein to keep the cord from kinking or breaking. But what it does is it contains mesenchymal stem cells. And Mm. yeah, so when you talk about like uh, fetal stem cells or like stem cells from, this is where they're from. They're from the umbilical cord and it contains extracellular matrix components as well. So if you're going to build something, you can use the Wharton's jelly to do that stem cells can become basically anything in case uh, the audience isn't aware in the human body and these cells specifically are used to uh, build like skeletal tissues and muscular tissues so today they're used to repair those in adults and like grown humans so they are used by our bodies to make and repair skeletal tissues such as cartilage bone and fat found in the bone marrow the cord contains the highest concentrations of these stem cells more than any other tissue and it can be used to reduce pain inflammation increase healing it's used in plastic surgeries uh, aesthetic medicine cardiovascular diseases endocrine and nervous system diseases cell transplantation and the repair of damaged musculoskeletal tissues and every birth, you get a little bit more. So cool. Nice. Yeah. So what did ancient people do? Depended on the ancient people, but not that much. Or they celebrated it. Ha- had a little yeah. parade for it. Yeah, yeah a little cool. placenta I'm, raid. 
I, I I thought there would be a lot more weirder stuff, but it sounds like they kind of did what, yeah. what we did. I'm always amazed at how not different we are from people thousands of years ago. You know, that I'm always reminded of that, that, like, humans haven't changed very much in hundreds of thousands of years. Like, the base things that we're working with, like, we've changed our environment around us and we've invented a lot of technology and stuff but we're we're still not that different we're still human and that's kind of like the problem right is like we've changed our culture so much faster than our brains have been able to evolve um it's a humble reminder of all of this um i i thought trace you're gonna come back with such different stuff this is so it is surprising it is surprising i i'm also thinking about like these ancient humans they were probably around more animals and more life they saw like seeing a birth was probably not something yeah. that was that unusual. They probably yeah. saw like animal births. They were probably more familiar with with seeing them. Um, so I, I guess this all makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I was also surprised there wasn't like, well, in this ancient, you know, in ancient Mesopotamia, they did this and ancient wherever they did that. We found right, evidence right. of the Neanderthals who did this. There was some sources that were like, likely everyone cut the placenta away from their offspring because once you're born there is this thing called a lotus birth it's not recommended by any scientific organization where you don't disconnect the baby the baby from the umbilical cord and you just leave it there and you would like take the baby around and like wrap the placenta and wrote in like gauze or whatever and carry it around until it falls off it would still come off a few days after birth um but you're essentially carrying a disease vector around with your newborn uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so but like it could be that we just saw people who did that and they were like oh well their kid died so i'm gonna get this thing off my kid right you right. know it's just like yeah, you, don't, I mean, you, the, you don't know we don't know the other thing is just um uh, for safety reasons and also convenience That's like there thinking. is right yeah i mean there's this natural uh drive to nurse the child and feed the child Mm-hmm. And having this like long thing hanging off is going to be really inconvenient for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Moving it around, yeah. taking it to Zoom meetings it's, with you. It's the same reason we're moving to wireless headphones, right? Yeah. Like it's just the, like a dangling cord. You're like, it's not that big a deal. And then it is. It just gets in the way. You know, it is. That is did a great I, analogy. Did I fail to capture the beauty of childbirth with that analogy? And on that note, why don't you take those headphones? and listen to a few of these adverts. If you've turned into this... Turned into it? You've turned into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely, but like, oh. Other houses. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay! Can I kind of get a little, like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah. Get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided 
taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. But with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps. And there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models, really big right now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead Check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size. This huge <laughs> brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd <laughs> antics. But I would definitely take one on large language models. Cool. <laughs> a Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. <laughs> Sally, turn on the lights! <laughs> Sally! Arm the burglar alarm! It supports the show. It'll be great. <laughs> and we're back. So, since we're talking about technology, I think that transitions well to Ali's question. Yeah, you nailed it. Thanks. Good job. What was your question for this week? I think my question was, can robots love? Yeah. That's and this one... Normally we try and like have a silly question on our own, but we we floated several to you and you chose this one. But as it happens, this one was not submitted by a human being, but by <laughs> chat GPT, which makes me think that you're going to be revealing some valuable information to the robots by answering it. <laughs> Maybe it would be better for the sake of humanity's future if we like do some John Connor stuff right now and just like yeah. not answer this if question. If we shut it down, if we. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. Wow, you guys. You guys, I want the robots to love. But I want what if, them to be able to. What if the answer to that question is they can't love and then they get upset and turn on us and they're yeah. like, well, if I can't love, I can hate and then oh. destroy humanity. See? We'll, we'll just or, have to keep loving, you know? Or what if they love and it ends up being this like really messy divorce because we don't get along? Yeah. You know? what if Because like, we're not taking out the trash. That's life, yeah. man. That's just life, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not just a bunch of zeros and ones. It's the it's the messy things. It's the the crazy ones. Now I'm just on an Apple commercial. I don't know. <laughs> so Ali, this is something in your wheelhouse, right? As part of the appeal of taking this question, so sort of yes. in, sort of out. As a as a founding member of the Robot Humid Love Society. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, are your children half robot? I never said they're fully human. I didn't ask that. The umbilical cord was literally an extension cable. He's got like real big snips. (laughs) Yeah, I Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, I I loved this question. Um, Number one, it's just like a... Really well-written question. It's only three words, and we could spend hours talking about this. But um, I, I think this this question is just fascinating. Um, you know, the question sort of begs two more questions. First off, which is, what is a robot? And then the eternal question of the 1990s, what is love? Baby, don't hurt Baby, me. Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah. Don't Have hurt me you. no more. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what is love? Love, love. So, Never going to um, give you up. Never, never going to let you, you down. <laughs> never going to. So I will you... not be rickrolled on my own podcast. I think you just were. <laughs> no. No, I refuse. That was a rather careless never whisper, Trace. Get, never going to get. <laughs> this is this is really complicated question. And unlike Trace's, there's um there's not a ton of like direct answers that we're gonna get here. So, so thanks for a, thanks a, for setting us up for the for that. Yeah. Really setting low expectations. <laughs> prepare, <laughs> prepare to have more questions and uncertainty coming your way. So, if, I, I knew more about the love side of this, and I knew less about the robot side of this, but I definitely was interested in in both sides of this. Uh, so, I kind of set out to first understand okay well what's the definition of a robot like wh- what are we talking about let's let's figure that out first and it turns out uh there's no real agreed upon definition even roboticists disagree hmm. about what a robot is and so you can kind of look up the definition of a robot a machine resembling a human being and able to replicate certain human movements and functions automatically right so that kind of makes you think like Star Wars droid, like something that looks like a human. It makes you think like a lot of old school science fiction. But then that doesn't capture things like ChatGBT. It doesn't capture things like a drone, uh, like the Mars rovers. It doesn't capture things like uh, robots that are building cars uh, and all these kind of factors. We call those robots, but that doesn't kind of factor into this. Hmm. So then there's... Another group of roboticists that have like a a broader definition, a robot is a machine, especially one programmable by a computer, capable of carrying out a complex series of actions automatically. Hmm. And that definition seems to make a lot more sense to me. It's, It's a thing you program that does stuff and kind of does stuff on its own, right? I think that captures a lot of a modern way of understanding robots. So if a robot is a machine and it does stuff that we tell it to do or that a computer tells it to do, can that thing love? Okay, so what is love? 
Baby, don't. And <laughs> you saw it coming. I was so, ready. I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready for love, but go on. Let's <gasps> let's let's get intimate here, folks. Um, All right. Oh no, you're not this... close enough to the mic for intimacy. Get in there. <laughs> let, let, let's get intimate. Um, this is also a complicated question. <laughs> If I ask you all, like, what is love? What comes to mind besides the songs? See, I'm sort of like, <laughs> I've got to like, <laughs> <laughs> What do you uh, think about when you think about love? What what comes up? You know, obviously, I think of the emotional stuff that comes up. You know, the things that humans connect to each other. But I'm trying to think of it like a robot. So it's a series of instructions that our brain gives parts of our body when releases certain chemicals like if you think of it in a mechanical way it's like it i don't know flushes your skin or it causes certain chemicals to be released which promote bonding or you know whatever but they're you know this is hard yeah that's hard kind of the direction i was going to go but my thought process also ran out of steam like before it could get to a real good conclusion. It's like, you know, it's all based on chemicals. And yeah, it's a strong like feeling of affection that you have towards somebody else. And then immediately my brain went in 20 different directions of all the different types of love and how you make those all fit into the same box. And it's not, it's pretty messy. Yeah. 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 Like love is chaos, but it feels nice. It's chaos. It's uh, uh, it, it, it's wild stuff here. Um, that is the way I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really complicated, and I think English really fails at describing this. Um, there are a lot of different cultures that have a lot of different words to describe the things that we think about when we think about love in an English sense. Like in an English sense, it's so love is so tied to these romantic and sexual desires. But we often we also like when you really ask someone, like, do you love your your friends? Like the friends you're closest to? And they would be like, Yeah, totally. I love yeah. them. Or like, you know, you love, you might love people in your family, but you have no sexual desire with them. Like, uh, unless you're like in like Game of Thrones world and yeah, stuff. Or Oedipus uh, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. And that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think English does a good job at really kind of speaking to this because we can, we can experience love in terms of intimacy. Like, Intimacy in terms of how close we feel to someone. Intimacy can be about, it it can be emotional. It can be um, totally intellectual. We can feel this like intimate connection with like our shared values or like shared interests. And we can, we can talk to each other for hours and hours and hours and have absolutely no physical attraction with one another right so that's just like intimacy is how close you feel to another person and then there's this other aspect of love which is all about like commitment and it's more like intellectual it's like i love you i'm gonna show up for you i'm gonna be there for you i'm gonna help you move i'm gonna help you do all these kind of things i'm gonna i'm gonna help you with the drywall make sure you lot the right like nails and stuff <laughs> yeah you so know this seems very autobiographical yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, what I'm thinking of when you describe all these things, though, is like robots can totally help me move, you know, like forklifts and stuff. But I guess the kind of difference is the choice involved in it. 
Mm. You know, Ooh, like when you love somebody, you make the choice to be there for them. Yeah. And a robot, if it's programmed just to do what it's told, it doesn't have a say in the matter. This is a weird random fun fact, but like the term robot even comes from like slave, like forced yeah. labor. Yeah. 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 It very quickly, we descended to Blade Runner, Battlestar Galactica, yeah. like Asimov territory here. Uh, you mentioned choice, Julian. Like, I think even that's debatable. Like, uh, if you think about family mm. and community mm. and that sort of obligation, like to some degree yeah you might have some choice um you can always move away uh but that seems to be more of a a recent development in in humanity if we look at like the big picture for the most part you're kind of born into a family you did what you had to do you you had a commitment to your family your community all of that sort of stuff you didn't have a lot of choice there and that is a form of love that mm-hmm. that commitment part you know and and then you know there's the passionate love which is the more sexual love. It is the more um, romantic desire. We were talking about all the biochemistry involved, and there's like different elements of that thrown across love. Like so much of love research has looked at what does love do for us in terms of mediating stress. There's the the famous uh, Harry Harlow's uh, rhesus monkey experiments, where he gave these baby rhesus monkeys who had been separated from their from their actual mothers um he gave them either a mother that was uh this like mother it's it was this this uh the wire mesh tube a very like matrix kind of mother very like googly eyes stuck on it so dark (laughs) i've seen the video it's so dark it's it's really kind of disturbing especially in terms of like animal ethics and Mm -hmm. and how we how we approach research but he gave them this this quote-unquote mother that was providing you with sustenance and then like a soft fake mother that was comfortable and soothing and these monkeys they preferred the soft mother they would go and get the food but then they would spend most of the time with the soft mother and there's a ton of research about how um there was a psychologist james cohen so he found that holding hands with a partner protected people from the stress of an electric shock you know and and this is kind of where i love how some psychologists work they're like how can we test this? Oh, I know. <laughs> we can shock people and see if they experience less pain if I, they're holding a loved one's hand. That's number one in the scientist toolkit of how to build an experiment, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> step well, one, see. apply electricity. Oh, we don't, we, don't, we don't have electricity? Do we have anything hot? Can we... <laughs> yeah. We, Get some hot stuff. Yeah, we'll put provoke it. discomfort via Can we poke them with something? Yeah, yeah, we don't have anything hot. Okay, uh, yeah, can we poke them? Do we have a, we don't have anything is there a sharp stick can budget? We, can we, like, shout at them? We're just going to shout at them. All right, get the wire mesh mother. I guess we're really low budget on this one. Get the Google. We didn't get the grant money. Um, wait, so, but, like, by holding hands with somebody who's about to be shocked, does the hand holder, I assume, also get shocked? I don't think so maybe they experience some discomfort at the sight of the i'm just um guessing here maybe they experience some discomfort over the sight of seeing someone they care about shock yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if that's an intentional part of the experiment actually is like well you can choose to hold hands with somebody knowing it will comfort them but you also get shocked Oh yeah, maybe. you know, and do you you're, like, you're looking at it from like a physics, like the electricity goes through person A and oh, into the person B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well, and and so like that sets up like the the relationship 
now you've got a choice. Like, do you want to be a good person at the expense of getting yeah. shocked? I think the shocks are probably like more surface level than like a Van de Graaff generator okay. kind of shock. But yeah. I don't know. I Just know. my my brain running wild. No, I like it. I, I, I love. Like it. That's I never. Why thought, that's why we're here. I didn't. I, I didn't anticipate physics being brought into it, but I I am here for it. <laughs> I I love that. Um, and and so this this research has been done with uh, not only romantic partners, but with friends, with parents, with kids, and it seems to hold up. And it's pretty consistent with a lot of what we know about social support, how humans turn to each other in times of crisis, in times of stress, but also um, in times of opportunity to grow. Like we have this ability to help each other. And when we do that with our partners, with the people we love, we um, we recover better from illness. Our immune systems work better. We live longer. Uh, the impact of stress is reduced. All this good stuff happens, right? And it happens because of this quote unquote idea of love. But then there's also attachment. You know, attachment is a word that's been thrown around a lot. It, people talk about it in terms of parent and child, but also in terms of adult romantic relationships. All attachment is, is when um, you're hurt or you're in an uncertain situation, it's how you turn to a caregiver, a partner uh, for support. That's that's basic attachment. Um, someone is hurting or someone is struggling and someone is helping. That's, that's how attachment works. And so that's a form of love. You know, so there's all this all this stuff. So kind of coming back to it, can robots love? All right, can these machines that are programmed to do stuff, can they feel any of these things? I think that's the inherent part of the question. But what's not sort of in the question is, okay, well, what if they, can we love robots? Which which I'll get to in, Easily. in a moment. I, all yeah, the time. I definitely yeah. do. <laughs> no, I think that answer is pretty easy. So uh, there's a really cool video I found. Um, if people want to find this on YouTube, it's MEI Robot Develops Emotions Through Interaction with Caregivers. So there are definitely efforts underway to train robots to experience some degree of emotion. And if you watch this video, what you'll basically see is they are training this robot to perceive basic human emotions and then replicate those emotions. So, for example, the person talks in a stern way. Um, the robot uh, sort of acts as if it's kind of being like disciplined. Um, if the, the human is excited, the robot gets excited. If the human seems sad, the robot seems sad. And that makes a lot of sense, right? We're, we're going to be living in a future where we're interacting with more and more automation. And it definitely makes sense for the automation to be able to better interact with humans, be able to better read humans, kind of like, hey, read the room, robot. No one wants to talk <laughs> about this right now. We're all kind of really bummed out because right. Westworld was canceled. I don't know. Um, Speaking of so robots. So it, it, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. But then, like, you were talking about real basic emotions here, really basic emotions about a, a, a robot resembling copying mimicking which is kind of what chat gbt does right now yeah right? like it asked us this question can robots love because we've been asking that question a lot it's just autocomplete right now mm. right but love as we've just described is a super complicated emotion 
So there was this wonderful article um, a, a few years back about uh, about this very question. And a roboticist, to, to kind of summarize it for folks, a roboticist said two things. Um, one is, well, love is a really complicated emotion. And um, robots might be able to kind of like fake it. And we won't be able to tell. Oh. Um, mm. So robots are like sociopaths, or like spouses in a loveless marriage, but they're faking oh. it for the for the kids. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're just kind of programmed to do it. Right. Which this kind of begs the question, like a, a very big philosophical question of like, would there be a difference yeah. between mm. that and what we think of as real love? Right. And this kind of gets to the movie Her. Yeah. Like if they're if they're programmed to love us and in every way, this advanced robot, their love looks like real love. Are they anywhere closer to being human or are they really just getting back to that original definition, a machine that's programmed to do stuff that we tell it to do? I feel like this is one, it's a really big conversation. It's like the Turing test where they're like testing to see if a robot is intelligent by chalk, by chatting to it. And if it convinces them that it's a person instead of a robot, then they pass the Turing test. It's more complicated than that. But if it's like convincing us that it has this emotion, what's the difference? Yeah. Right? Like we, I, if you and I have been friends for a long time, you and I have been friends for a long time, we could have all been faking it this whole time inside yeah. of our own heads, but we don't even know we're faking it because we're just programmed to right. do this. Right. To, right. We're, we we're have also, programming too. Right. We're programmed to yeah. do it. Uh, just so you know, I don't think I'm faking it. I really love both of you guys. You guys are great. <laughs> but like, Thanks. I might not know whether I'm faking it or not because I'm just responding to my programming, which is chemical instead of binary. But what's the difference? I, I was reminded of an old episode of House where he's talking with one of her his doctors and she's, you know, having a relationship with another doctor. And he's like, well, do you love him? And she's like, I don't I don't love him. I only think I love him. And he's like, what is the difference? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference? What is it? Oh, I just think I love him. Then you do, don't you? Yeah. While you were talking, Ali, I was like, so if I created a computer that when it communicated with other computers or people wanted to communicate with those people more, you know, formed attachments like, oh, I really like this server because it gets me a lot of this information. So I'm going to make more connections to this server. And I really like this person because it adds a lot of like input to my life that I'm getting from this person. And over time, it just got used to doing those things. You know, that computer programs work that way too. You write a program, it doesn't, even ones that are smart, they go to specific places to get data um, right. and they can learn to go to new places to get new data and maybe they like maybe chat gpt loves reddit because it's like such a rich source <laughs> of new data and we just don't use that language but if chat gpt could choose to like make more connections and pull more data from reddit isn't that just attachment kind of like well, a weird way yeah you know this is i think this is a big problem we're having with ai right now is we're we're attaching these very familiar names to concepts that are not in any way like human. The way ChatGPT is learning is by sort of Kirby style ingesting all this collective <laughs> knowledge, mm -hmm. which is not how humans learn at all. Like a, a, a human child develops basic understandings of generalities 
Like, so, for example, everything is a car. A truck is a car. Like any moving vehicle is a car. It makes all these like mistakes and generalities and kids get older and they learn a little bit more. Their schemas, these these general understandings that become more complicated as as their understanding of the world becomes complicated. Chat GBT is just sort of like like absorbed all this knowledge, but it's really immature and dumb. And then when it makes mistakes, we call them hallucinations, which are not in any way like human hallucinations, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so our language is not quite there. I think we need new new terms to describe what AI is doing and what robots might be capable of. So I think there's a big gap there. But if people are really interested in this topic, that article I was sort of alluding to, it's called Can Robots Fall in Love and Why Would They? I think it's a very old, uh, like, 2017 Daily Beast article. So he described, like, yeah, like, okay, maybe they can replicate it, and it'll look the same, and then what does that mean? And, you know, what are the ethics involved, and what are the rights involved, right? Yeah. Um, but then the other thing he describes, which is, like, really practical, and I think we should also think about, is, like, okay, true love would mean a whole new way of, uh, of programming robots, we're not capable of doing that. It's going to take a lot of time. But it's also a really bad idea. Because if <laughs> robots are designed to do automation, do we really want to give them emotions? Because it's not just about giving them love. And if we give them that ability, they might also have the ability to get really bored with their work. Mm, yeah. And then maybe they won't, don't want to do the automation anymore. And then what's the ethics involved in that? Yeah. Now they truly are slaves. Because not only are we asking them to, do all this stuff but they might really not want to do it so maybe we don't want to give them the emotions i mean we learned in the future documentary star trek the next generation when <laughs> lore was given emotion data's twin brother he became a sociopath and then data had to slowly dip the toe right. in emotion over multiple seasons and episodes and and show and like movies to really start to grasp it. And even he was like, this is really complicated and I don't know if I yeah. want to do this. That's It's a really good point, Trace, because that's how teams are approaching teaching robots right now. Basic emotions are trying to teach them like, like we teach kids. Mm. Like kids are very young. They they have these reactions. We help kids to learn, oh, you're really hungry. Oh, you're sad. You got a boo-boo. So we give them the words to understand what's happening inside. And as they get older, we give them more ways of understanding, expressing, and dealing with it. So that's kind of a lot of what the training models for training uh, robots with emotions are like right now. Um, but, you know, to like these questions, we're not going to be able to kind of settle, but I want to I want to leave people with uh, a more silly thought, which Ooh. is um, so what about sex toys? At what point? Yeah, are what about sex them? Who's <laughs> yeah? Yeah, <laughs> let's all. I mean, talk about talking the, the hypothetical. Room. That's a curb. <laughs> I, I yeah. love sex toys. Sex toys are the best. <laughs> so, sex toys could probably be defined as robots. These machines that are programmed to engage in some type of automation. Yeah, depending on the sex toy. Right? Super good so automation. Check, check right there. Can they be programmed to engage in some type of sexual desire or, you know, create these reactions in other people that produce sexual desire or some type of desire? Yeah. So is that love? Is a sex toy that is producing sexual desire in you and has been programmed to 
please you is that love? I don't think I have an answer to I, that. Sounds sounds like passion, but is the sex toy also going to show up to my hockey game later? Like, <laughs> look, if you if you want it to, I can. I can. You know, I don't know. I don't think the sex toy. I think the sex toy only wants me for my body. <laughs> but that's love too. Just a different that's type. Just up. Different type the of love. Just that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. it's a different yeah. type of love. Yeah. Wow, man. One person, one thing, one robot does not need to satisfy all your desires for love. Mm. You know, we can get the intimacy one place, commitment another place, passion another place. And actually, Julian, maybe that maybe that sex toy would be really good at showing up at the hockey game. You know, maybe <laughs> it, would, it would show up better than a human might. Yeah. You never know until you try, man. You got to take the leap. Well, and I'm, now I'm thinking about like the the monkeys with like the different mothers and like, okay, I'll have like mm. the comfy, cozy, cuddly robot for when I want to watch a movie with somebody, and then the sex robot. <laughs> I mean, we've already got we've already got both of those things. So yeah. it's like there are pillows yeah. that like know that you're cuddling, and if you start to wake up, it like soothes you, like it can cool itself down, or it can you know release sound or smell. But you know, what if the robots get things. jealous of each other though? That's that's my fear. Is like when these emotions start dipping into the negative and like jealousy and anger and revenge start to swirl in their robot minds. That's Look, my fear. We've already solved and, this, Julian. We just don't give them that ability. Yeah. Don't give it. it. I think that's what this comes down to. As sad as that is. What, so yeah. robots can love, but probably shouldn't. Isn't I it? think robots can be programmed to show love, but we shouldn't give them the ability to feel love. It's so sad. But also, also someone's gonna do it. You know, yeah. it's gonna be a Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's, it's you gonna, know, we just gotta make sure um, they're on an island, fenced in, fenced in, and we only look at them all from the, jeeps. All the crazed sex robots, <laughs> sex robot island. You know, people would Netflix go there. Netflix is totally gonna greenlight that. <laughs> Now we really have the title for this episode. Sex, Sex Robot, Robot Island. Coming this fall to Fox. <laughs> I'd watch it. No shame. Next week on Bravo. Sex Robot Island. Then we get a bunch of clips of people yelling at each other. Tanya, you bitch. Beep, boop, boop, beep. <laughs> you broke the pump that serves as my heart. I would love to see C-3PO host the like after show special too. <laughs> I think C-3PO would be awesome at that. He'd be so straight laced. You'd need an R2-D2 yeah. character, like an R5 unit that's just in the background, like steaming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Talk about the ultimate sex toy. That thing has so many attachments. Yeah. And more every time they need a new <laughs> Deus Ex Machina. It's sort of plot filler. <laughs> Now they can fly. Now they can bend space. Like, it doesn't matter. Doesn't oh, matter. yeah. It'd also be your Somehow. co-pilot in your, in yeah. your space fighter jet. Honestly, why doesn't everyone have one? Does yeah. that make sense? <laughs> well, thank you for that, Ali. I think yeah. I learned a lot about robots, but also love. Mostly love. And some yeah, about and robots. hopefully a little bit about sex toys. I yeah, think I, need I, more I didn't even know they were a thing before this. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's, yes. Yep. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, my question. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we're back. Thank you again for sticking around through two questions so far. What about placentas and umbilical cords in the past? Do robots love? Now we have our third question. Julian, what was your question this This week? is radically different from the first two, uh, but I'm pretty <laughs> excited about it. We're not going to get to talk about placentae or sex robots, but I promise it'll be interesting because my question for this episode is, what if there were no moon? Whoa. Trace, I believe this was your your thought bubble. Yeah. I have you heard of the terrible movie Moonfall? I I had a suspicion that oh, this is exactly where this came it's from. So bad. And I so have terrible. watched the honest trailer to that movie. Yeah. <laughs> which I think qualifies as watching the movie. I yeah. think you've gotten yeah, yeah. all mean, you need to. You get the movie from seeing even the dishonest trailer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I saw the I saw the Ryan George pitch meeting right, where he plays yes. both the producer and the, <laughs> yes. the scriptwriter. And it's like, okay, cool, the moon falls, gets closer to the earth. That would mess up everything. We all know that. When I was a kid, my dad really liked to make me watch old school sci-fi. And one of those old school sci-fi that we watched on Laserdisc was Space 1999. Oh, Do you yes. know Space 1999? What? Oh, no. yeah. Okay, Space 1999. There is a colony of... 19 I'm 70s I'm assuming I was a kid I don't know 70s I'm assuming what would be 1970s hot people and they're all living (laughs) on this colony and a nuclear accident happens and the explosion pushes the moon out of orbit they never focus on what would actually be exciting which is to say what's happening on earth and instead focus (laughs) on the hot people who are still on the moon and now they're on a you know, spaceship are, moon. Okay, my next question is, are any of these people sex robots? <laughs> you know, if they sex were, robot what did moon. they do with their placentae? <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly they put them on poles and yeah. they made a parade <laughs> <laughs> and decapitated anyone who disagreed. Easy. Yeah. So I was watching, I didn't actually watch Moonfall. I tried, couldn't. And I was like, look, I don't care if the moon gets closer. And it made me think of Space 1999. The moon goes away. What happens? See, I, you know, I looked into this and a lot of the questions that people pose online are of the same vein of what if there were no moon? And, and, but I think a much more interesting question that I did not see asked as much was what if it had just never formed in the first place? Ooh, oh, interesting. I like that. Yeah. And so to tackle that, I think first we should have the groundwork laid of where we think the moon came from in the first place. Yeah. So before Apollo, there were a lot of different competing <laughs> I'm theories. I'm sorry. I, based on the last two stories, I'm sorry to jump in. I was just thinking, when two planets love each other very much. <laughs> the moon. Yeah, the moon is basic. Actually, oh my God. The moon. I was, yeah, yeah. I mean, the I moon said say, they were unrelated. It is essentially the placenta of, uh, yes. yeah. of planetary formation. It came from formation. the afterbirth of the Earth. You're kind from of right. Oh, my God. I'm jumping up and down. Oh, no. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so before Apollo... <laughs> The god? The, no, after the, the god, Star but Galact- before no, no, the, the Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, Galactica yeah. Apollo. Oh, the remake or the original? <laughs> both, both. Oh, wow. Listen, yeah. nerds, I'm trying to talk here. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have so much like shared sci-fi overlap that I do not have. Before we started recording, I practically gave Ali a conniption mixing up Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and now you will have my revenge. 
Kevin! <laughs> Con! Yeah, that's Star There we Wars. go. Now we're back on the good terms. Okay. <laughs> he was doing the Benedict Cumberbatch one, though. Oh, yeah! J.J. <laughs> nah, Abrams does both of them. Nothing is sacred. Okay. The space mission Apollo <laughs> was pretty pivotal to our understanding of where the moon came from because before oh. that, we had some competing theories. There were several, but there were three kind of main ones. There's capture theory. So there's just the moon wandering out there through a space. And as it floats by Earth, Earth grabs it and it moves into orbit. There's accretion. So just as the Earth is forming from all the dust after the sun is formed, you know, that's floating around, you get the Earth kind of clump into a ball and then separately the moon clumps into a ball and they stay together and you have you know, moon in orbit. And then you have fission, where an early Earth was spinning so fast, it just kind of launched the moon into orbit, like off of itself. It like cleaves off and you get a separate moon. But when the Apollo astronauts came back with space rocks and they analyzed the composition and like the isotope concentrations of certain isotopes, they realized it was really, really similar to Earth, but not exactly the same. And so it ruled out pretty much all those theories. And in order to explain it, we came up with the giant impact theory. So basically, proto-Earth, billions of years ago, uh, was, you know, globbing up and forming along. And out of nowhere, a Mars-sized planet toyed object that we call Thea smacks into the Earth and basically launches all this material into orbit around the Earth, and that's the formation of the moon. So that's why you get the similar isotope concentration. But you also have these things from the moon that only form like rapidly under really high temperatures. And so we think that's that explains like that that big collision and all that energy that was released explains why we see what we see in the moon. Let's say that doesn't happen, right? And you just have that early earth forming and Thea, you know, doesn't exist, never happened, never smacked into the earth. So I started thinking and uh, my first question was, okay, if we remove essentially a Mars-sized planet from the earth, what happens to gravity? Mm, that's what I was mm -hmm. thinking. Yeah. I was so, like, wow, because we merged with that big thing. Yeah. And the moon is just like the stuff that Thea Earth kind of threw into space yes. near near enough that it got caught in our gravity. Yeah. So just want to throw out a, a poll, an unscientific poll, but do you think you would be able to jump higher on this hypothetical no moon, no Thea impact Earth or not as high? I don't jump very high as it is. Not so, as high. Yeah. Not I as think, high. I think, well, I'm yeah. going to go opposite then. Uh, $1, Bob. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, uh, Trace is is right, but only by a little bit. And also, big asterisk. I did the math on this, so who it. knows? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we did the math. Nice. All right. Okay. We'll get one of these. Well, someday we'll have a soundboard, but in the meantime, we just have to. We have to. Do, do you want to join us on that analog. one, Ollie? Do you want to do oh, it yeah, again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Yeah. You take the one, baseline. One, two, three. We, we did the math. Nice. Okay. Yeah. You're going to so, have to have a UK version. <laughs> oh, maths. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do uh localized. We got to localize. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. We, we did, did the maths. maths. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you got that long S. It's, it's a nightmare. Sorry. Please continue, Julie. All right. So, uh gravity, uh, the you know, the gravitational pull you feel 
in classical physics. It depends on the masses of the objects involved, but also how far you are from the center of mass. So, okay, the way I did it, I basically added together the mass of Earth and the Moon, and then subtracted the mass of Mars, and I assumed the density of Earth was about the same. Mm. I have no proof of w if this is a good way of approaching this, but that's how I did it. Yeah, I mean, you probably have a big error bar, but that yeah. seems right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So doing all that, the Earth is less massive than it is now, but it is also smaller. And mm. when you factor those two things in, you get gravitational acceleration, according to my math, of 9.48 meters per second squared, when normally on Earth it's 9.8. So the difference is really, really tiny. Hmm. But you could jump slightly higher. And if you were crashing in an airplane, it would take uh, slightly longer. Yeah, to, to hit the ground. Yeah, yeah sure. Nice. That's So that's some comfort there. But <laughs> More time. Yay. To, to panic. To read the To result. call your favorite love robot. Oh, okay. And let's tell, do it. Tell it that, you, that you're going to miss it. Tanya. And it carry on without you. Tanya, your, my heart pump was never broken. I was just jealous. <laughs> All right. So yeah, you have a, a slightly lower gravity, but more importantly, it also introduces a ton of different complications on you know how Earth came to be. So we think when Theia smacked into Earth, it basically turned the entire exterior into molten rock, just so much energy. And oh. then eventually this settled down into the world we see today, but that could be like the beginning of why we have tectonic plates. Mm. Or how about this for you? When Theia first hit the Earth and then the moon got basically flung off, uh, the moon was much, much closer, like twice as close as it is now. But the reason the moon has slowly been moving farther away is because the moon exerts a pull on the Earth, like it creates a, a tidal bulge, but it also pulls on that bulge because the bulge isn't perfectly aligned with the, the moon. So it slows the Earth down a little bit and the Earth basically transfers energy to the moon and the moon moves a little bit farther away. So the moon is slowly moving farther away from us as the Earth slows down. So after Theia hit the Earth, Earth's rotation would be like a six hour day. What? Yeah. Wow. Just like extremely quick rotating Earth. And because the moon is so much closer, the tidal forces are much bigger, right? We talked about like distance from the massive object depends a lot on how far you are from it, right? It's a it's an inverse square relationship. So you've got this early Earth and it's got the moon that's way closer and the days that are way, way shorter. And so some scientists think this may have been crucial to life starting on Earth. Whoa, no moon, no life. Possibly. It depends on how life originated, because we know it started in the ocean, right? And then question is, did it start with an energy source like towards the bottom of the sea where hydrothermal vents and heat provided like the energy needed for these molecules to start mingling and eventually self-replicating? Or did it happen closer to the surface? And one idea is if you have, you know, these extreme tides that happen 
every three hours, you know, between high and low tide, uh, you get like water washing up on rocks and stuff, you know, once oceans form. Uh, water washes up on rocks and then the water quickly recedes and the water on the rock evaporates and you get more and more concentrated chemicals there. And so you can mm. start building up these concentrations of chemicals needed to eventually start making organic molecules and DNA and RNA. So it has been put forward that the moon was critical to life forming on Earth. And so, yeah, po- if there were no moon ever, possibly... There is no life on Earth. Whoa. But not in the way of like it destroyed. It's more just like, no, the conditions weren't right. We just never got it. Yeah. Yeah. No life, uh, no sex robots. Um, Definitely no placenta. That's, I mean, that's really (laughs) interesting. Like the question that I am most, I hope we answer and probably are never going to answer is how did non-life become life? Oh, yeah. That's like, that's the question. Oh, that's the big one. I don't think we have time for it on this episode. You took up too much time with the sex robots. I totally have the answer right here, though. Oh, no. Ah, Uh, Right in that that spreadsheet. Mm, Yeah, Um. it's at the very bottom, though, and I do have to go in order. (laughs) Yeah, that's a shame. Are you a robot? But this gets right to that, right to that um, potential potential thing there. Um, Wow, that puts a moon in a whole new light. It's pretty cool, right? I mean, our moon is special among moons in the solar system. It's like the largest relative to the mass of the body that it's orbiting like you know mm. mars has a couple moons but they're teeny tiny yeah, yeah. and yeah. jupiter has a lot like so 60, many 90 moons. but they're all specks in comparison yeah. to its and girth. jupiter's freaking enormous yeah. yeah exactly our moon is quite unusual in our own solar system which is possibly why it had all these very important effects uh another very important thing about the moon is the stabilizing effect it has on the earth's tilt Mm. so not only did it slow our days down to 24 hours which by the way other fun things like just in the mesozoic era you know time of dinosaurs we think days on earth were like 20 hours long as opposed to 24 yeah because it's just slowly slowing down over those millions of years over those millions of millions of years yeah we've gotten like four hours which is great because i always say i need like another six hours in my day so if i just live come back a couple million years from now several hundred million years (laughs) no big deal That'll fi- I'll finally have time to sleep and then be productive during the day. Um, we'll find things to fill your day. Don't worry. So let's imagine, though, that life forms in the absence of a moon, uh, but we you know, still don't have a moon. It would be terrible to be on Earth Oh, because the moon also keeps our tilt, you know, our axial tilt, our obliquity uh, in a pretty small band, right? We're like 23.5 degrees is our current tilt, and we only go back and forth a couple of degrees. When you say tilt, you mean like, so Earth is spinning around yeah. in, a, in, in a, like a top? Yeah. And the, it's not like directly up and down. Yes. It's like a little off the and so like the top spins a lot and the bottom spins less so like relative to our orbital plane right okay, the flat, axis yeah. yeah is it intersects that at like a 23 degree uh, got it angle got it. to the normal right made it yeah got it. so so that's what i'm talking about the the wobble of the top is precession but how far the top is tilted over is obliquity mm, okay yeah So the obliquity of our planet, uh, I have seen proposed, without a moon, could be as much as 45 degrees. 
Which Ooh. is insane. I don't know why it's insane, but the way you're phrasing it makes it sound insane. Okay, let me what, put it this way. Yeah, what would happen? Let yeah. me put it this way. Uh, you know how there's certain uh, latitudes that yeah. in the winter are, are dark for yeah. weeks straight yeah, yeah, and in yeah, the yeah, summer yeah, yeah, yeah. are light? Do you, do you want to guess what latitude those are at? I wouldn't even know where to start. I'll give you a hint. I told you that our obliquity is 23.5 degrees. Okay, so 23 latitude. Well, sort of, but opposite. So 90 minus 23. So Uh. yeah, so 66.5 degrees. So anything above 66.5 degrees from the equator or below that, you know, because we start at zero at the equator and then in either direction. Work our way up and down. Yeah, exactly. So, or below 66.5 degrees south in the summer uh, gets endless daylight in the winter, endless darkness. Now, if the Earth's tilt is 45 degrees, do you want to guess what latitude that happens at? This is some easy math. Yeah, okay, but where I grew up, you could drive to the 45th parallel. Yeah. In north, in like mid-Michigan. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, do you sorry want, Canada? Do you want to hear some major <laughs> cities that are above the forty-fifth parallel? Yeah, please. London, Paris, Berlin, Seattle, Montreal, Budapest, Zurich—all uh, those places would get continuous darkness during the winter and continuous sunlight in the wow. summer. Wow! Yikes! Yeah. And super indirect sunlight during like the shoulder seasons, right? Because yeah. you're tilted away. And when you're tilted away, the sun hits the atmosphere at an angle mm-hmm. and it doesn't get as warm mm-hmm. as it like in the summer. We're leaning more toward like the northern hemisphere is leaning more toward the sun and thus we get a nice warm summer. Yeah. But if it weren't, I yeah, mean, we'd be like swinging temperatures and be wild. It would it would be quite a lot. So we would get like localized ice ages and the climate would be insane. And the, the tilt would go back and forth between different, you know, obliquities uh, a lot more frequently. It wouldn't be nearly as stable. So yeah, you'd get absolute havoc on the climate if there was no moon stabilizing our orbit. Hmm. And then add to that the impact it has on tides, which is probably where most people's brains went first when you say like, what if no moon? Yeah, you're like, oh, there's no weather. There's no tides, whatever. Everybody knows that the moon plays a major role in causing the tides on the earth, right? And if it were gone, there would still be some tidal forces at work because the sun also contributes to the tidal bulges. Like when the moon and the sun are in a line with the earth. Uh, you get what's called spring tides. Yeah, it's king, the most king tides, right? Yeah. And then when they're, the moon is perpendicular to the earth and sun, you know, forms like a 90 degree angle with them, then you get neap tides where the tides are smallest. Um, if we had no moon, our spring tides would be like a quarter as big as they are now. So hmm. much, much, much smaller. And tidal movement also plays an important role in moving energy throughout the world and kind of driving currents and moving warm water around. So without these tides, you get more extreme differences of climate where just certain areas are you know, warming up and other areas are staying cold. So it's really a climate disaster wow. without the moon. It's, it's quite, quite bad uh, if life even exists in the first place. So yeah, that's um, that's what would happen if no moon had ever formed around us. Possibly there's no life, no tectonic plate movement, uh, extreme seasons and weather and major differences in tides. And oh, also our days could be way, way, way shorter. Six hours. Yeah. Man, I couldn't get anything done. 
But <laughs> would that mean that like, oh, well, a whole week we could have and like, you know, just what would be a few days now? Yeah, okay, <laughs> it would be a lot shorter, right? If days were four times faster. <laughs> but um, our year would be the same length. Right. right so there would be well, a lot probably more days. approximately we're not calculating the momentum that thea would have imparted to proto earth when it yeah. hit depending on where it hit from or whatever yeah but i let's have no idea where was, earth was it, it hit it in such a way that imparted minimal momentum yeah yeah, yeah. i, I there's they're no still debating it. over whether you know when thea hit if it created like a big dust cloud that then it created into the moon or pretty much immediately there was a moon within a few hours like mm. they're, they're still modeling all that to try and come to some conclusion and um the artemis missions that are going to go to the lunar south pole are also going to collect more minerals to help try and resolve some of these questions about how exactly the moon formed because all the apollo missions are from kind of like the same-ish area hmm. what might have been the the result of not having tectonic plates not having earthquakes the volcanic activity all that kind of stuff like on this earth that isn't doesn't have all that energy going on below the surface what would that be like yeah that's a great question i mean the reason the moon looks so scarred and pockmarked is because it doesn't have that tectonic movement that's constantly like refreshing the the earth's crust and everything so like the earth has that ability to make new earth and subduct old earth and and kind of renew itself and also um it would have a major effect on like speciation and stuff right because if there's no mm. tectonic plate movement you don't get the drifting continents that we have now which that, force right. a lot of evolutionary changes too over time you know you like get a yeah and two animals that are separate but they used to be one thing you know you need those barriers uh, and those disasters in order to do those things yeah yeah I yeah. mean, on some level. Exactly. That's oh, really neat. And we talked a little bit about the, the human impact, right? I don't know necessarily explicitly about menstruation, but I did also think like there's a lot of cultures that have a, a lunar calendar mm -hmm. central to them. I'm thinking yeah. like people who are Muslim or the Chinese calendar or tons and tons of like people, humans have like looked up at the moon and used it as an important reference point for timekeeping and for, you know, aspects of their culture that would just be gone. Yeah. So they would have probably done the stars instead, which would be much easier to see mm -hmm. all the time. That's also true. Yeah, the, that big bright object of the moon would washes oh. out the stars when it's a full moon. So it would like be constantly having a, a new moon. And on the other side, talking about evolutionary impacts, a lot of nocturnal animals that hunt by moonlight mm. uh, would just not be able to do that, right? Yeah. So they would have to have different strategies they would have had to evolve in a different way yeah i mean it's a it would fundamentally change life on our planet yeah I, massively it kind of makes me think the other big question that w we've been focused on probably forever is like is there other life out there and or was there and it's no longer here but now i'm, I'm thinking well there's a second question if we find life on mars if we find life on europa or evidence of life then there's an even bigger question, which is like, how did it form? Mm -hmm. like, if if the moon might have been so important in the development of life here on Earth, what were the factors at play that might lead to life on Mars, Europa, or wherever we might find it? Um, and that's also a really interesting question because it makes me think if there is life out there, there might be a unique set of circumstances beyond just like water that led to that life forming. Yeah, right now we've just got the one data point of us. If we found life, 
Typhon Europa, we have two data points, and now we can be like, okay, where's mm-hmm. the overlap? They both had right. heat. They both had these organic minerals. But Europa didn't have this and still got life, and we thought that was really important to life. Yeah. And maybe right. it's not. Now we don't know. It's a learned question. You know, it, or maybe life is more able to, fo- you know, there's so many reasons why we want to find life in other places, not just to be like, we're no longer alone. That's the big philosophical yeah. one. But just like how h- h- how and why right. questions right. that are just, we just are like, well, we make a bunch of assumptions based on what we see. And you can imagine that that's, that is the way we answer the question of how does non-life become life? We need more data points Yeah, beyond definitely. just Earth. Yeah, for sure. For and if sure. we don't get those data points, boy, will that be a bummer. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, we'll oh. need so many sex robots to make us feel whole again. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow, that was absurd. But elaborate. Say. It was elaborate. Yeah, you thanks both, for sticking we, around. I think a lot of elaboration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really liked it. So, Ali, thanks so much for coming on That's Absurd. Please elaborate. It's You're Thank like you our so second much. guest. Woo, oh, yay. my gosh. That was, that was a ton of fun. I learned in answering my question i learned in hearing your answers um that was that was that was a lot of fun a lot more learning than usually happens on my uh whatever day this is we're recording i don't know my lunar calendar doesn't work anymore so i have no clue (laughs) (laughs) all right well y'all out in the uh listening verse please enjoy your whatever day it is enjoy your thursday (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and thanks a lot for listening. Ali, where can people find you if they want to, you know, learn all about what you do out there in the world? Yeah, so I um, I make a lot of YouTube videos. If you go to youtube.com slash at Dr. Ali, D-R-A-L-I, that'll get you to me. I've also got a podcast called Inside Voices with Dr. Ali. You can you can find that wherever you like to do your your podding. Uh, open those pod bay doors and just let me in uh, into your ears and I, I will be there. Uh, and I make a lot of a lot of stuff about mental health, about how it is, understanding it, how we can share our um, our stories uh, about mental health with other people and how we can kind of show up for the people in our lives and, and be there and, 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 and do good. So that's, that's a little bit of what I do. That's great. Julian, where can people find you out there? Always. You can find me on a podcast called That's Absurd, Please Allow Perfect. I also have a Twitter called Hug It Out that I don't really use anymore. So I I save all my good thoughts for here. So if you like uh, like my joking around, this is the place to find it, baby. Love that. You can find more about That's Absurd Show at thatsabsurdshow.com. You can find us on all the socials, although we're still trying to figure out our social strategy. If you know anything about that, send me a tweet. You can find me at Trace Dominguez on YouTube at Trace Dominguez, where I make sciencey nerd stuff. Or you can find me on, you know, all sorts of other things. Just, you know, just do what everybody does and give me a search. Just Bing me, you know? Why would, that's what everybody does, right? Yeah. Ask the AI Bing assistant. (laughs) Bard, find me someone to love and Trace (laughs) pops up at the top. That'll it? Yeah. Hello. I heard you need someone to love. Hot singles in your area. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening, everyone. Enjoy your Thursday. We'll see you next time.